Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, and you should, if you don't, we have some up here on the table here. Open to Luke chapter 15. Um, I'm going to give a very short preamble, and then we're going to dive into the reading uh, from verses 11 to 32, long reading today, a lot to discover, a lot to look at. I'm really excited about it. One of my favorite parables of all time that Jesus preached and taught. Uh, just very quickly, if you're visiting with us and new with us, we decided to do this series um, six or seven weeks ago, or a little longer maybe, but six or seven messages so far in this series, because we, we figured we, we need to dive into God's Word, and we need wisdom. All of us desperately need wisdom, not the worldly wisdom uh, that, that basically says, uh, you know, do what your heart tells you to do, you know, follow your heart. No, we need to listen to the Word of God. We need to, the wisdom that comes from above. And then a week ago, we decided for the last six weeks of the series, I decided, we decided, to look at some parables of Jesus. Go figure. Uh, what we have discovered is that Jesus is the incarnate flesh wisdom. He is wisdom in the flesh incarnated into our world. The wisdom that we need comes from Him, from the Heavenly Father, from God. And it's ironic, it's interesting how, I mean, we all know His parables. They're amazing little stories with a nugget of, of a simple idea that's truth, and, and yet they're full of wisdom. And there's a great comparison between the parables of Jesus and the Proverbs of Solomon. And so what we've been doing in this last week, and we'll do this week as well, you're going to see in our missional community groups throughout the week that I'll be providing, we'll be providing a lot of follow-up to this message that is from Proverbs. And in related to this parable, it's going to be from Proverbs 3 and 4 so that you can dig deeper and you'll see. I won't be quoting a lot of verses from Proverbs today related to this passage, uh, but you'll see that in study. So I just want to encourage you once again. Um, we need you to be there with us. If you're not in a small group, join it. Become part of it. We need you to be part of family with us and to discover God's Word more deeply with us. But also, you need this. You need family, a place where you can be loved, challenged, and brought deeper into the Word of God together with your brothers and sisters. So read with me. I want to read this amazing story that Jesus tells. Beginning in chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine came across the land in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father interrupted him. The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and he's alive again. 
He was lost, and he is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your commands. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead, and he is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, would you? Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, thank you so much for these words. Lord Jesus, thank you. These are your words as recorded by Dr. Luke. Thank you so much, uh, Holy Spirit, for bringing these words to us. Father, we pray as we look at this familiar parable uh, that you would speak truth to us, that you would reveal who you are to us, who we are, and how much you love us. And I ask these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So clearly, this parable is one of the most popular or best-known parables uh, of Jesus. Uh, You have probably heard uh, many, many, many sermons on this parable. Uh, In your Bibles, if you have the ESV, whatever translation you might have, the title of this sermon or this parable is probably the parable of the prodigal son. Well, I've changed the title. (laughs) I I, I don't think that title and many other pastors and commentators would agree really captures the main issue that Jesus is trying to get across here. So we've titled this the parable of the prodigal sons, as in plural, right? Because all of Jesus' parables are basically a contrast. There's always a contrast between one thing and the other so that we will see the big idea, the wisdom that's in the parable. And the contrast here is really between the younger brother and the elder brother. It's remarkable what we're going to see. So first of all, as most of you know, in order for us to study anything in the Bible, we've got to know the context. And we just read a large portion, uh, and you would think, well, that's it, Glenn. We can just dive in, and and, and we'll know what what we're doing here. But actually, no, we need to back up a few verses because there is something else that I want you to see going on here. We need to place ourselves into that time and place and actually in, have in this theater the play being played out, okay? So I'm going to ask some of you today to maybe play some of these characters. Who wants to play the tax collectors and sinners? Okay. Read with me. Look at this. In Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, it starts off with this. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying... This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. So we saw this again last week in the parable we looked at last week of the two builders. Uh, This is a typical crowd that follows Jesus throughout his whole 3.5 years of ministry. Uh, You've got the the tax collectors and the sinners, the outcasts, the down and out in society who follow him and love him. I mean, they, they, they love what he's saying. They love what he does for them, feeds them, heals them, 
They love him. But then there's these other guys, these religious dudes who are constantly following him as well, and they're critical. They're always there. In, in all of the parables and all of the ministry, they're there. But we need to see this. The tax collectors and the sinners, they're not two different groups, right? But the, these are the ones that really, the Pharisees were really annoyed about those two groups. I mean, the only difference between these groups is one in the minds of the Pharisees was further down the food chain, right? Like, that would be the tax collectors. So if any of you want to play them today, maybe you would just be like a, a, a drug addict, uh, uh, maybe, no, maybe a drug dealer uh, in our culture today, or a politician. Okay, that was, that was not fair. But you get the idea. They were the lowest of the low in that day in the religious mind. So this was a very Middle Eastern uh, Jewish setting at that time. Um, the Jewish religious leaders by this time had become used to the idea, which wasn't God's idea. It wasn't what the Old Testament was all about. But they got to the, the, used to the idea that they were God's chosen people and God only loved them <laughs> because they were so righteous, because they were so good at least outwardly. These uncouth, unclean Gentile pagans, well, they were beneath them. Beneath God, too, one would think. That was their attitude. But then this Jesus guy shows up. He's Jewish. He's a rabbi. He preaches the Word of God. He knows the Old Testament better than any of us, and they love him. They love him. Sinners, outcasts, people who were completely unwelcome in their neat, clean, and religiously tidy homes were flocking to Jesus, clinging to his every word, and he, shamefully, was welcoming them, that, welcoming them, hugging them, you know, eating with them. Oh, how low can you get, Rabbi? This is the scene. This you didn't do if you were a good, moral, and righteous person. You see the word grumble that's there? This really means that they're, they're just complaining about him. They just, they're just standing over like by the water cooler going, what's going on here? Does he not know what these people are like? Why are these people allowed in our church? Let's bring it up to today. So then in verse 3, we see this. So he told them this parable. Okay, so it's important. We understand the context here. Jesus he, he hears them. He knows they're looking at these people sideways and looking down at them, these tax collectors and sinners. And so he tells them a parable, the first of three in this chapter. We're, we're dealing with the third one today. We don't need to look at the other two. But it, I just want you to see that it's, it's actually to them. <laughs> and then we eventually get to this parable that Jesus says and we read today. So I want you to imagine that scene once again as Jesus is standing here this morning. Imagine he's standing there, right? I mean, he, he can see you. He can see, you know, he's looking out, you know, and he sees this crowd. Hundreds of people are following him, maybe over a thousand on this particular occasion. It wasn't the Sermon on the Mount, but, but maybe over a thousand are following him. And then there's this gaggle of religious people, right? And they're looking at him, and Jesus is going, actually, I came to save all of you, but why is there more of this crowd and so few of you? I think that's what he's seeing when he looks out on this morning. And so we've got, listen, you know, in our world today, obviously we've got hundreds of societies, outcasts, sinners of every kind following Jesus. We've got a few drug dealers, addicts, prostitutes, criminals, liars, cheaters, you know, sinners of all kinds worshiping God. But we also have several grumpy religious types looking down on everyone, and Jesus introduces them and us to the Father who has two sons. That's the point. That's the lead-in to where we're at here today. So it's, it's kind of hard to know who you should sympathize with most in this parable, isn't it, right? 
I think some of us who've heard this sermon before, it's all focused on the younger brother, right? It's all focused on him. You know, he's the hero of the story. He's the, he, you know, we, 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 we kind of relate to him, right? Some of us, more than others, who were very wayward and rebellious in our youth, right? We might relate to him. And then we see, you know, he's redeemed. It's a good story. You could make a movie out of this. It's awesome, right? He's the hero. Actually, no, he's not the hero. Neither are the hero in this story. But we can definitely emphasize, I think, and appreciate, at least we should, the Father. Is He not the hero of the story? Right. I think it's much more difficult for some of us to appreciate the elder brother, though, isn't it? To sympathize with him. The question is why? Why do we have a problem with the elder brother? I mean, it's just, well, obviously, we're not like him. Settle down. <laughs> we got to get through this parable. Things might change as we look at this. I want you to also see this as we're doing this today, that this is Jesus speaking. And when he looks out and he, does, he speaks a parable to these religious men, it isn't because he's trying to show them up. Some people get that impression, you know, Jesus, he's doing this, he's speaking in parables because he just, he just wants to make them look bad. No. See this. He loves them. And I think you're going to see that in the parable. So let's start looking at that. Verse 12, we already read it, but here it is again. And the younger brother of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So here's, listen, here's what they would have heard in that, that day, those listening. Tax collectors and sinners too, but mostly the religious guys, the Pharisees, they would have heard this and it would have been shocking to them. I mean, the first thing is, is that inheritance in a Middle Eastern Jewish family and all Middle Eastern families, frankly, in that day, um, were divided this way. Two-thirds would go to the eldest son. So if you're born first, you're, you're, you're really liking this. And, and then one-third to the, the second or the, the youngest, if there were two sons. But, and, and this is huge. The inheritance would be divided at the point when the father dies. <laughs> now, everybody knew that, you know, the father's going to die and that, you know, I'm going to get two-thirds and you're going to get one-third. And, and, you know, most people were happy with that division. But the point was the father needed to die. And so, the, the, again, see them over here. They're standing over here, the religious guys, right? They're grumpy. They're, they're complaining. Now, they hear this and, and, and they're thinking, well, wait a second. What a disrespectful young man. Basically, what this young man had said to his father is, you mean so little to me, you're already dead to me, so give me my money. Give me my inheritance. That was how rude and disrespectful it would have appeared to the crowd listening to him at that time. You mean so little to me, our relationship means so little to me, it's, it's as if you're already dead to me, just give me what's coming to me, I want it now, I want it, not you. That's what would have been heard. Well, most of the guys who were there listening, they, the second part of this verse would have really freaked them out. But what they would have expected before Jesus actually said it is, they would expect that Jesus would have said something like this or done something like this. You know, the father then beats him upside the head, told him to get out of his house, and said, no, here's the deal, you're dead to me. It's kind of like Mr. Wonderful on Dragon's Den, right? It's a terrible analogy, but anyway. In their minds, that would have been appropriate. That would have been appropriate. Or at least they thought a response of a well-respected father in that day would be to 
kick him out of the house and give him nothing. That's what they would have expected. But Jesus' next words are even more shocking. It says very simply, and he divided his property between them. Man, <laughs> these guys are like, that's crazy. That's, that's nuts. This is completely upside down. Not what they expect or thought should happen at all. Here's the really big deal about this is that in that day, way more than today, although it's still true to some extent, especially if you own a home in Squamish, um, property was your wealth. Your, your land was your wealth. The, the word there in the Greek for property is actually the word bios, where we get the word biology, and it literally means life. And so the father's life <laughs> was in this land, in this property. The father's wealth was in his land. Therefore, what the father did, which was completely countercultural, was to go and sell enough of his property, of his life, sacrifice it, and give it to his son unconditionally because he demanded it. Again, this, the Pharisees, they would have freaked out about this. What the Pharisees and any other Middle Eastern patriarch expected to hear was that the father had kicked him out of the house, out of his life, and then had a, held a family meeting to declare officially, this son is dead to me and to us as a family. You will have no contact with him. He will not be welcomed back into our home. End of story. It's pretty harsh, right? It sounds very harsh. But before we go too far here, let me also make sure we understand this. Mother would have been none too happy with son, too. It's about our family. Mother would always have father's back if he was a good father, a good patriarch. This is about the family. This is about the family. And the father is the representative of the whole family. It says, going on, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So off he goes on and, and what will turn out to be uh, a very foolish journey of self-discovery, right? Really of self-wasting is what he's going to do. Right from the start, Jesus' listeners would have, would have known that, that what he's painting here is a worst-case scenario. It's intentional. He's painting a worst-case scenario. And then when he says, in a far country, the, the, again, the Jewish people there would go, oh, we know what you're talking about. We know exactly what you're talking about. You're talking about Gentile land, <laughs> where all the sinners and tax collectors are from, is where he's going, this far country. It implies Gentile, pagan, party town territory, and everyone knew what that would lead to. A train wreck. Reckless living leads to a train wreck. So imagine you and I, right, because I, I was born in North Toronto, not quite the suburbs, but close. You know, you and I were from small towns or cities, suburbs or across Canada, and you know, most of us have a pretty good upbringing, you know, like some hopefully you did. And, and you, know, you know, but you know, as we're growing up, as we get into our teens, we get a little rebellious, right? And then all of a sudden, we, you know, we're 18, 19, we say to mom and dad, yeah, moving to Whistler. Got a job. I'm going to have my own place with 12 other people because I can't afford my own place. But we're going to have fun. We're going to party. And you're going to be with people. Sorry to pick on Whistler friends, but it's just close, right? 
And some of you can relate on that, but this could be any place, Vegas, it could be anywhere in the world, downtown, east side, anywhere in the world where people go so they can be with people who are living reckless lives, who are doing whatever they want with whomever they want without anyone standing over them, telling them, you're wrong, that's bad. People who are there for exactly the same reasons. Train wrecks. Some of you know what I'm talking about. So our young man in the story, he hits a dead end. He loses everything, and he ends up essentially on the streets. He, he's fallen so low. Again, worst case scenario, Jesus is painting this on purpose. So the, the guys over here get this story well, right? That, that he's feeding the most unclean animals in Jewish life, right? Pigs. And he's gotten to the point he's, he, he would just as soon eat their food. Now, again, like, <laughs> from, from a Pharisee perspective, there is no way this son can ever be redeemed. Anyone can be redeemed when they get that low. That's the mindset, sadly. Well, at this point, our story takes a hopeful turn. I hope we'll see that. Verse 17 on says, But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. It almost sounds like he's been humbled, right? Yeah, probably has. But not quite yet. Not quite yet. Verse 17 is really one of my favorite parts of this parable, especially the words, when he came to himself. The literal Greek there would be, when he came to his senses. <laughs> Has anyone here ever been you know, going down a road, down a path where you, you were headed for a train wreck or you hit a train wreck and you were like, man, I was glad I woke up at that point. Don't raise your hands, but think about it. Maybe you're on that road. <laughs> Turn around. It's really my favorite. When he came to his senses, our young man here wakes up and he, and he looks at what has happened to him. He, and, and here's the thing. He makes a plan. See that? He makes a plan. He's like, okay, look, my father has lots of people working for him and they're doing way better than me. Yeah, you weren't in this condition before. And so here's what, look, I will do. Not quite humble yet. He's making a plan about what he will do. First, here's what I'll do. I'll go home and I'll apologize. Well, that's a good start, right? I mean, the religious guys hear that and they're going, okay. Yeah, not good enough, but okay. <laughs> I will apologize. I mean, that'll be a good thing to do, to do. And since I know there is no way that he or the family will have me back as a son, I'll just ask for a job. That's his logic. That, that's his plan. And there's actually some, some good logic in that plan. He, he's not only going to apologize, but look at this. He's going to be asked to be hired on as a laborer, someone who works for his father, not as a slave in the house. But why is that? This is an interesting point. Why would he be doing that? Well, he, he knows this. He's probably thinking this. I'm going to imply this, but it kind of comes out in the parable, is that Servants were fed and taken care of, but not paid. Slaves, that is. Hired hands were paid a salary. 
and usually didn't live on the property, but they were paid a salary. So in his mind, he's thinking, I know how this works in our culture. Not only do I need to apologize, but I need to make restitution. I need to try and pay my father back in some way, shape, or form. Restitution was required in that society. You couldn't just apologize. You need to make full restitution. So then, as I said a few minutes ago, the story takes a hopeful turn, but it wasn't because he came to his senses. It was because, in my opinion, in the way that I read this, he began to think about the hero of the story, his father, his father. In verse 20, we see more about the father. It says this, and he arose with his plan and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and had or felt compassion for him. And he ran to him and he embraced him and he kissed him. Need to make a small diversion here about father. I've counseled uh, a fair number of young men in my life. I've counseled uh, couples with men in the couples. (laughs) And women too. And I can say with a great deal of certainty that um, for many of us and many of the people who have counseled, they have been hurt by their earthly father badly. In some cases, horrifically. Some of you here today uh, maybe didn't really have a father in your life. Some of you here today had a father who was, you know, he was good sometimes and other times pretty harsh. And, 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 I mean, sadly, truth is, for many people today, the idea of God as our Father who loves us with great compassion and unconditionally, it's hard. (laughs) I understand that. My father was a functional alcoholic, and when he was sober, he loved me. I think he always loved me. But when he was, he had a few. I was a failure, a loser, would never amount to anything, and that hurt. It affected me as a young man and as a man into my 40s, most of my life. There's another aspect here that I have to bring up. You've probably heard me use the word patriarch a few times, right? And, and it's, it's, it's interesting, but only in the last 40 to 50 wor- years has that word and the concept been be considered a bad thing in our culture. I, I did some Googling and checking around, and, and man, there are people out there, if you just a- a- Google in and ask this question on Google, you know, When did patriarchy or the idea of a patriarch become a bad thing? You're going to find it it, it turned about 40 to 50 years ago, and and it really is a result of a group of people who, let me put it this way, without naming names or one gender over the other. Okay, I just gave something away. The idea was what is wrong with our society, what is wrong with men and male and female relationships is patriarchy. Well, it started with the Bible and what the Bible taught, about men and women and, and who we are as male and female and, and how we should operate within the home. And so the problem became, A, the Bible, B, patriarchy. In fact, modern um, scholars in that area or protagonists in that area would say the reason why we have a culture today that looks down upon people who are LGBTQ+, is because of patriarchy. Well, here's the problem. It's called the Bible. It's called the point of, of, of Jesus' parable here is the Father, God, is our better 
perfect patriarch. Husbands, men in this room, hear me. You know we have these talks from time to time. This is the model that you and I are supposed to live out. We fail. And because we fail, we give, we give cause for people to doubt our Heavenly Father as a father. And the idea of a patriarch who loves his family, his wife, honors them, cares for them, who, who they look up to as being that man, that father for the family. Not that he's above, but because he sacrifices himself for the sake of his wife and his family. So it's a difficult conclusion if you read the Bible. Here in this parable, Jesus is telling two groups of people that they're both wrong about this, by the way. Those Pharisees who think that the father, if he were a true patriarch, should, be, should have been harsher you know, with his younger son, were wrong, Jesus is saying. But he's also saying that those who think that the whole thing should be just obliterated and washed away in our society today and in that day, you're wrong too. Because here is the model. I love the fact that we sang that song. The worship team um, didn't know where I was going this week when they chose the first song today. Good, good father. That's awesome. (laughs) Before the young man could even see his father, God the Father in this story saw him. Before you turned, before I turned, wherever we were in our lives, wherever you are right now, he sees you. This father sees you. Before you or I came to our senses, our loving Father saw us, and He longs to do what He does here. Shower His compassion, His embrace, His kisses on all of us. The religious Pharisees who acted more like bullies in their homes as fathers would have once again been shocked by this Father's actions. They'd be like, well, what are you doing? Lifting up your tunic and running, you know, showing your legs? Like a, a, a patriarch never did that. And, and, and wait a second, he's filthy. He's been feeding pigs. Look at him. And, and you're embracing him? And, and, and you're hugging him and you're kissing him? This, I mean, appearances, please. Father, patriarch. So we've already noted that the son starts to tell his father what he had planned to do, right? But you notice what happens here? I mean, he, he, he starts off, he starts going that direction. He begins to get his apology out, but before he can tell him the plan about being a hired servant, the father cuts him off and then says to him right away, actually publicly says, quickly bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they begin to celebrate. They begin to celebrate. So Jesus seems to confirm something here. He seems to confirm what the Pharisees would have hoped the father had done, and that is declare him dead to us as the family. But that's not what Jesus is getting at at all. This part of the story Pharisee, tax collector, sinner, all, is about our salvation. (laughs) It's about how we get saved. And it's a beautiful part of this story. So let's see this about how we are saved. The Son represents all of us before we come home to God. His story shows us the gospel in very clear ways, and most notably this way. There is nothing you or I can do to save ourselves. Amen? We got that one nailed yet, rocksters? I mean, there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. And that's 
what this is getting at. The son comes home, look, filthy, dirty, and before he can do anything to clean himself up, to make him more, himself more acceptable and approvable to his father, his father says, I'll have none of that. You can take my best robe and I'm going to cover your sin. I'm going to cover you. And my robe is going to make you righteous. I don't care about how dirty you got. We'll talk about that later, maybe. But no, right now, I just love you, and you're fully and acceptable to me because this son was dead in his sins. And now I, his father, declare him alive again, born again. But there's more. In this story, it's amazing. For this to happen, and the Pharisees, this would have rocked them because they're sitting there going, wait a second. Grace? <laughs> grace? You're going you're gonna to show grace to this guy? Where's the restitution? Well, it's right there. There's a cost. And it's right there in the parable. There's a cost to be paid. There's a debt owed. The son intuitively knew this, but he thought he could pay his own debt, save himself. No. There's the fatted calf, <laughs> It's the most expensive thing actually the family owns when it comes to a celebration, a, a, um, a sacrifice. So an animal is slaughtered, is sacrificed. Blood is shed. What is that telling us? What's that foreshadowing in Jesus' life for you and for me on the cross and in our place? It's the blood shed so that the family could celebrate the salvation of the younger son. And finally, of course, there is the elder son. What we must not miss here is key to the story. Sacrificing the calf, listen, sacrificing the calf from the father's perspective was like, yes, but it was a cost in eternal terms, wasn't it, to send his only begotten son into this world to be crucified by you and me, by all humans, really, to be sacrificed for us. But listen, this was a cost to the elder brother too. We need to see this. Sacrificing the, the, the calf was going to cost the old, older brother. So because all of what his father has now is his, he's thinking, wait a second, that, that's my calf. I'm like, right? That was his attitude. And so first we read that this elder brother was actually doing a good thing. He, he was still at home, which is maybe in some cases at 40, not a good thing, boys. But anyway, we don't know if he was married or not, but he's at home. But what is he doing? What's a good thing? He's working the family business. He's got a job, right? And he goes and he works hard in the field, and then he comes back into the home. But as he comes back from the field, he hears music, and he sees people dancing, and he's like, eh, I don't really like this around here. I'm not really a happy kind of guy, and why are we all happy and celebrating? What's going on? And then the servant, I don't know if you could tell in the, the way you know, I, I spoke, but his, his words are very encouraging. He's excited. The, the servant is excited like the father is, but not the elder brother. And his words are, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back, safe and sound. So the servant is happy, but the older brother, the elder brother, is, look at this, he's angry. Men, husbands, fathers, women too. But as a father, as a husband, as a patriarch, it's your anger that'll kill it. It's my anger that kills it and gives cause in this world to think that that model that the Scripture teaches needs to go away. Anger. He's angry. 
It's, it's so sad to see. But why? Because as far as he was concerned, his brother was dead to him and as a man who intended on becoming an unkind patriarch himself, he would remain dead. Father, what are you doing? He's a Pharisee. Pharisees, think they picked up on this? They're still standing there. <laughs> you think they might have picked up on this? I, I think they did. They did. So then we read that when the father heard that he was angry and refused to go in, the father even goes out to that son. It's a beautiful picture. He goes out to him. He entreats him. Literally, it means he invited him, who was already his son, who was already home, but he invites him in to the celebration. Don't leave the family. Don't separate yourself. Be part of the family. The elder son's response is tragic. He says, look. And again, like in that day, in that language, it would have been like, look, you These many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, yours, came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Is he really thinking about the father throughout all this? I don't think so. He's thinking about the cost to him. That's what he's thinking about. He's very disrespectful to his father. He also shows us another aspect of our salvation. So remember, this son represents the Pharisees. They're still there listening, and they know Jesus is talking about them, and here's what Jesus is telling them and you and I. No, no. Your good works were not good enough to save you, and they're not good enough to keep you saved or earn my approval and acceptance when you come home. Ever. It's a beautiful picture. Sadly, the truth is neither of these sons actually loved the father or wanted a relationship with their father, but instead they wanted the father's things, his wealth, his life, but not him. They were both, from the story's perspective, lost and needed to be found. And so what does the elder brother do? Well, he said to him, actually the father says to him, son, you were always with me. And all that was mine was yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, and now he is found. The story ends with a kind of a cliffhanger, doesn't it? <laughs> you kind of think it's going to be a, a trilogy, right? There's going to be another, like a follow-up, like a sequel. No, this is the third parable in the story. So we don't know. Does he come in? Does he come home? Let me give you a few applications to close this morning. I think they're important for us to take away from this message. Number one, I know you probably know this, but I hope you'll hear it. You and I are never too far from God, never too far gone to be saved and welcomed home by Him. Have you ever felt that way? You know, I, I, I'm just not going to share the incidents or whatever, but I, I felt that after I know I got saved. <laughs> That, you know, the way I'm thinking and the way I'm behaving, ah, you know, I've ruined it. I've ruined it. There's no hope. can't believe that because this is what this tells us. The worst of the worst, the lowest of the low. Exaggeration, yes, but not exaggeration about the compassion and love of our Heavenly Father. He will forgive you. He will forgive me. He will forgive everyone. Secondly, your my salvation is all work of God. 
We, we have to believe that, Christian. We have to believe that. Because if we don't come to Christ that way, knowing that I didn't decide to receive Jesus, to become a Christian, He called me. He pursued me. He saw me. And He saved me. And He will keep me saved for the rest of my life. This last one, I want to tell you a little story just to explain this one. But number three would be this. As God's people, He wants us to honor Him as He showers His generosity on all of the tax collectors and sinners, the lowest of the low outcasts that He welcomes into this church. Do you hear that one? Many years ago, I'll change the names so that uh, people well, will remain confidential, but many years ago, I played in a band, a Christian band, and uh, was also directing a Bible camp up in the Okanagan. And I thought it'd be a great idea because it was for, for teens, right, 16 to 20 years of age. And I love young people, and I wanted, that was the Bible camp that I was leading out one week up in the Okanagan. I thought, hey, we'll have our band come. We'll do the worship, play some of our original songs. It'd be awesome. Band's good. Young people will love it. And I also thought it'd be a great idea since one of the sponsoring churches of this particular uh, camp up in the Okanagan had a Sunday service, obviously, that we would go up Saturday night because the camp started at 2 o'clock on Sunday where the kids would show up. We'd go to their morning worship service. And so we happened to get there that morning. It was great. And we were there in the band and uh, all four of us in the band were, were there and a few others that were part of the leadership team were there. And, and they were having communion that day and, and they started off with communion and, and we had communion with them. And then the family Bible hour was great. Church, the church was awesome. We go, we have a week-long phenomenal camp. Kim, kids come to Jesus. Union Gospel Mission had sponsored a bunch, a bunch of kids in Kelowna to come to this particular camp. And uh, about three months later, I got a call from one of the directors of the camp who went to that church that we had visited. And he said, yeah, we want to come down, Glenn, and just debrief with you how camp went. We do that with all the directors. Could you meet us for lunch one day? I said, sure. We go for lunch, and I'm sitting down with these two men, and I, I could tell within a second something was wrong. What did I do? <laughs> it was a great camp. The kids came to Jesus, right? The music was awesome, right? Well, Glenn, um, we're a little concerned. Um, one of the members of your band... Um, did you not know that he had very long hair? And you brought him to our communion table. Um, I'll tell you that his name is John. He used to be in the Hells Angels. Dealt drugs. And he came to Jesus in a remarkable way. Him and his wife. They're, you know, hard drugs, drinking, lifestyle. And he's in our band. And, he, and he's a good musician. And he's a good guy, a wonderful, wonderful heart. And they were like, and, and not only that, Glenn, we were a little concerned because, you know, um, you know, some of our families felt that there were too many Union Gospel Mission kids at this camp, and it made them uncomfortable that their kids were there with those kids. <laughs> Before they asked me, you know, could I fix that for next year, I said, gentlemen, I will not be back. I'm not being proud to tell you that, but here's, here's what happened, though. John heard about this. I mean, I had to share what was going on. And he and his wife were so discouraged by that treatment because they were still young in their faith. They got into some issues with their own local pastor in the church that they were going to in the valley. And they got so upset, they all of a sudden started seeing everyone judging them like that. And they left the church. And they haven't been back. And this is 15, 20 years ago. And their little girl, their daughter that we knew at the time, is now in her 20s, and she's full-on into the occult. 
church. <laughs> One of the things that we need to take away from this message today is if you, you have to see, we all have to see ourselves as the lost one, the younger son. We all have to see ourselves that way. But when Jesus invites us into the church, into his family, friends, the danger is that all of us have the potential to become like an elder brother. Now, how should this elder brother have actually behaved in this story? Let me close with this. Maybe he could have had compassion for his father who had lost his son. <laughs> Maybe he could have felt bad for his father and said, Dad, here's what I'll do. Like, I'll go find him. I'll spend my own money and go find this son. And, and if, he, if he needs food or clothing or, or you know, money for, for rent or whatever, I'll, I'll give it to him. It doesn't matter what the cost is to me. And if he'll hear me and he'll come home, I'll bring him back. Isn't that what the elder son should have done? It is. And here's the moral to the story. Our elder brother did exactly that. That's what Jesus did. He said, Father, I'll go. I'll go. No matter what the cost, and I know what the cost will be, it'll be my life. But I will bring them home. Let's pray.